0: I'm Carrie Benedette, and this is my podcast, Thriving Matters, where you will find tools to revitalise you and your relationships, whether at work or in your personal life. Well, a little bit about me. I'm an education consultant specialising in emotional intelligence, and I use creative approaches that empower people with proven processes. I'm known for my high energy, passion and compassion for those in need of help. And I like to shine a spotlight on what we can do. I'm here to bring positivity, confidence, and strength every day, everywhere. My mantra in life has been: let's give it a red hot shot. Listeners, it's Carrie Benedet with another episode of Thriving Matters Podcast, and our guest for this episode. Is the beautiful Sarah Morse, and you are going to absolutely love her story. So stay tuned. How are you, Sarah? Really well, thanks, Carrie. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm not too bad for a Monday, and um, I've uh, you know been visiting mum a fair bit over the last couple of weeks. So that's the part of life that I think we all we all end up being part of at some stage so she's uh just um aging and declining a bit so um that's just the way it is and i know that um something would have gotten you out of bed today so let's listeners let's get right into this because all our guests are pretty ordinary guys and gals who are doing extraordinary things in life and work and you're going to hear all about this this people whisperer we have with us today Sarah Morse so Sarah tell us what how you get out of bed each day what what does it for you?
1: Uh, well literally the thing that gets me out of bed is my children uh, so <laughs> we start the day with cuddles and and uh, that's a really beautiful ritual that I like so whatever time they wake up 6 or 6 30 they come into bed and they're all still sleepy and warm and we have a cuddle in bed before we start the day so that's nice. always start to my day uh, no matter what time I got to bed the night before uh, to start the day and be grateful for my two beautiful girls Uh, so yeah obviously getting up and and getting into the day getting them ready for school so we had a dress up day today it was Narnia day today at my daughter's school so she went off dressed as Aslan the lion and uh, with her blonde curls as her as her mane so so that was good and uh, so once we get past school hours, though, um, once the girls are off to school, then the thing that uh, really gets me going is thinking about uh, my business and my professional speaking business that I love and how I can be reaching people to speak about a culture of courage.
0: Oh, and, and really, Aslan couldn't be a better metaphor for you to to actually talk about your your motivational speaking um, career career. Um, your the work you do around the world globally and that's what our listeners are going to tune into and hear about today it's absolutely stunning because you do cultivate a culture of courage and we all know as parents every now and then that lioness or lion comes out in us doesn't it you know Uh, and when we're looking at what's the best decision for them how to protect them against things how to help them learn something new Um, and I love the fact that you do talk about this notion of thriving with everyone that you work with because alongside thriving goes this other notion of resilience and we can't just talk about resilience as a thing that happens by osmosis Mm -hmm. it actually has to happen through challenge adversity change and then how we support that and how we how we then learn from it so you know, one of the things you do, I know, is um, have your own thriving formula for the day. So you've got your cuddles in place, you've got the you've got the love of the girls, getting them off to school, and all that part of it. And then this view to working in your business. So what else do you do during the day when you just need a bit of a circuit breaker, or something to pump you up, or something that you know will help you move from one task. the next task
1: sure i mean one thing that i do try and build into my morning routine is a morning walk i didn't get there today but uh but normally i do go for a half hour walk every morning and i really use that as a time Uh, i like to think about uh, resilience as something that we can do on a daily basis as well in the choices that we make And, you know, resilience, I sort of feel like it's a bit of a balancing act between the things that happen to us and also the choices that we make each day as well. So I have a a bit of a five point framework for resilience, which is um, just physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and then indulgence, which is, I think, uh, really nice, because sometimes when people think about you know, resilience and self-care they think about oh well I don't have time to get to the day spa or I don't have time for a holiday whatever mm-hmm. um, but just doing those things daily to help ourselves to thrive and so my morning walk is a really big part of that routine uh, so um, thankfully I've got a, a great husband who manages most of the school morning hustle uh, I was on I was on Aslan duty this morning which is why I couldn't go for my walk I had to make sure we had the hair right and had, the, had all that uh, but yeah, on my morning walk, that's really a time that I use for pretty much crossing off all of those things in one go in half an hour. So I get the physical yeah. and then it's a really good time just to emotionally decompress, uh, you know, just sort of think through any, any big emotions that are going on and then mentally kind of prepare through the day, think through things that I need to be doing. Often I'll, I'll sometimes be texting while I'm out walking. Cause I'm just, I'm thinking, oh, I meant to get back to that person. Or that's the time when those kind of uh, thoughts surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use that as a spiritual time as well. So I have my um, worship music going on and I use that time to pray and meditate as well. And then it also does feel a little bit indulgent being away from the kids during that morning rush as well. So I feel like that's when I do that morning walk, I really notice the difference in my own mental health as Mm -hmm. well. Uh, And then a couple of times a week, I do that with girlfriends as well. So sometimes I do that on my own. And then uh, on a Monday morning, I meet up with two girlfriends and we walked uh, the beach together, which has become a really Uh integral part of... Of my year this year. uh, And that's sort of like when we don't do it, uh, I really, really miss that. So Mm. I'm grateful that uh, I've got two new friends in my life this year. And uh, that's become a really beautiful ritual that we're doing every week together. Just a time to sort of debrief the week, you know, how's each other going, keep each other accountable to different things. And that's become a really critical part of my own self care as well.
0: Oh, thanks for sharing that because um, a lot of our listeners will be sort of ticking off against what they do you know what else does somebody else do and and is there um a benefit if i try something new if something's is not doing it but one i love the beach as well because it's actually very um tactile we have we can use nearly all our senses when we're there that the ocean the smell of the ocean does it for me like especially if the breeze is up and you're getting an offshore but even getting your Feet in the sand and the grittiness of different beaches have different textures. Mm-hmm. Um, then the water, that, that notion of water lapping up and down, or if you're in for a swim after it and the water coming over your head, there's something about, you know, washing, washing things away, being cleansed out of it. It's just stunning. And then you've got the colour, you know, what, what's happening. So that's a beautiful, thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, that's uh, so, I Very much. Yeah.
1: I love the beach. And when I, <laughs> when I don't have it, I miss it a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Sarah, tell us how you got to do what you're doing now. So tell us a little bit about how you started off in your early career um, and sort of, you know, I look at people's stories and just so curious about about them. And, you know, it's my brilliant life for every one of us. Mm -hmm. And we don't often look at it like that. Um, But this thriving in life and work matters so much. And there's lots of things that matter about all the different parts so it's a bit of a play but tell us how you started off how where yeah. did it all begin for Sarah Moores
1: right well I mean my my journey is very secure uh, as as a lot of people's are um, but I had a bit of insecurity around that for a while thinking well I haven't you know, done this career progression plan, like people around me have done. And I haven't necessarily reached uh, those pinnacles in of of career brilliance, because I've changed a lot. And I've had a lot of change in my life. Uh, But when I look back on my life, it really is that that moment of like, wow, look at this brilliant life that we get to live. This is incredible. So, um, so, where to start it's always the question but uh, I mean I was really grateful and still really grateful to have been brought up in a really beautiful loving family which I think was the start was a really strong foundation for me to start with parents that just believed that I could do anything who just backed me whatever crazy plans that I had you know often getting on board with last minute you know I remember I had this big concert one time that I put on to raise money for indigenous people and you know my parents are out there selling drinks and putting up posters <laughs> you know these things you know they're you know 100% my uh, cheer squad early on and I'm so grateful for that early start of um having a family uh, who who had my back so uh when I was 17 I got selected to go on a world vision study tour with the 40 hour famine and um which was back in the in the 90s was a big fundraiser for for world vision and uh Got, yeah, I got selected to go on a study tour to experience some of the World Vision projects firsthand. Yeah. And for me as a 17-year-old coming uh, from the beautiful beaches of Sydney, that was a very, very big eye-opener and a big culture shock. Uh, seeing somebody yeah. for the first time really uh, radically changed my life. And it was just a 10-day trip to Zimbabwe and Zambia, but we visited uh, many different projects, uh, particularly in Zambia. There was a drought going on at the time and... Oh. Um, were involved in some food distribution and things like that and just really realizing how much I had uh, and how much I had to give to the world and so when I came back from there that was a real turning point in my life and I thought to myself I could go back to my ordinary life and and uh, do the things that I thought were expected of me in that ordinary life or I could choose to live a life in service of other people and to try and help the people like the ones that I'd met in Africa Mm -hmm. so as a young 17, 18 year old, as I started uni and my nursing degree, that's really uh, the place that I started from, really wanting to serve and to um, to serve the poor. And I was so blessed on the very first day of uni, I met my best friend, who's still my best friend now, and uh, she had exactly the same vision, and um, uh, and so we we really connected over that. And uh, she's now since gone on to being a doctor, um, but both of us with our with our eyes on, uh, you know, how can we make our lives matter and how can we serve the poor in that process so Mm -hmm. uh, I became a nurse and um, I did my new graduate program and then uh, right on the back of my new graduate program I set off to Romania and I went and worked in an orphanage in Romania for two years and at that time in the early 2000s uh, Romanian children were still very much in a in a state of abandonment and neglect so Mm -hmm. Uh, back in the late 80s, the orphanages opened and we saw um, about 100,000 children that were left abandoned and neglected across Romania with uh, Ceausescu's regime. And so in the early 2000s, I sort of thought, oh, it'll probably be a bit better by now, surely. Uh, yeah. But it wasn't. We, we encountered children who had never been touched or held, had never been taken outside, uh, had spent their whole lives basically confined to the cot uh, that they were living in. And uh, so that was an extraordinary time. I worked there for two years, and yeah. uh, that time we we raised up a team of local volunteers, and we were taking uh, Romanian uh, women, mostly women, and some men also, into the into the orphanage. And we just saw an incredible difference happen to those children's lives in the time that we were there. Uh, they went from being scared to being touched and held to, you know, running towards us with open arms. We taught them to walk, to feed themselves, to uh, to talk. And, you know, we saw those children just progress in, in leaps and bounds. And uh, so, but I think probably for me, the biggest achievement was to bring in these teams of health workers. And we were training not only volunteers, but the staff in the orphanage as well. Mm. So what we realized was those staff were really disempowered as well that they'd been told, you know, these children, they'll never, they'll never grow, they'll never change, there's nothing. And so they were, they felt very disempowered. And we were able to bring in teams of healthcare workers and train them in basic physio, basic OT, basic speech stuff. Uh, And then they were able to do that themselves. So even Mm -hmm. when we worked there, the children were getting access to those kind of therapies. And we saw those, those orphanage workers, at the same time as the children grew and blossomed, we saw those orphanage workers blossom
0: oh as well. So that was just—I very- just, just had an image of your heart, um, just sort of like bursting with so much love for what not only you were able to do, but what the children were able to do, but also the volunteers and those working in the orphanages. How how that would have just turned around a whole culture that they were they were living in.
1: Yeah, we did. We we did see massive culture change there. And when we first started working at the orphanage, the the workers were very hostile towards us. They thought we were there to take their jobs or whatever. The the team leader, Ruth, who was, um, she was only just a little bit older than me, but she was a beautiful, wonderful leader. And she said, we are going to, we're going to lead with love and we're going to just demonstrate to them servant leadership. And so for a whole year, we just loved the children and also loved the workers and they'd be really rude to us and you know that's uh, you know here come these volunteers again or whatever uh we just kept <laughs> up and we kept on just loving them you know showing them by example how to love the children and it's hard I mean one of the hardest things that I've had to do because we could see them they were abusing the children children they would tie children up to chairs for example because they couldn't be bothered to look after them things like that so um but instead of t- you know, telling them off or whatever, we just would love the children and, and show them how to do it. And we had a Christmas party on Christmas Day that year and um, after, after going in there for, yeah, a year, more than a year, and uh, we brought gifts for the children, but we also brought gifts for them and their children as well because they were poor as well yeah. and they all had children at home. And they were saying, oh, do we have to bring the children to this Christmas party? And we said, no, no, this one's just for you. You know, this is just for you and they came in and they saw this pile of presents for their own children to take home and they just just were gobsmacked and they said why would you do this why would you why mm. would you bring us presents when we've been so horrible to you all year you know mm. uh, and and after that that's when we noticed the big change that's when they let us bring in the, the people to train them before that they weren't interested at all and after that
0: it makes they- yeah it makes me uh just go back to you know um when we get triggered, it's usually something that hits our values, beliefs, assumptions, and if that's all we know, well, then we we can be very fearful, mm. uh, and we because we think, well, where's our aut- autonomy going, or our sense of certainty, or our status? You know, that's that's the sort of thing. Um, I've got a real interest in emotional intelligence, and what you're describing is basically a massive case study mm. on on. Um, yeah, on how to be aware of what you're going through, but also um, help them be a little bit more aware of that. But making, you know, the right decisions to being authentic in how in how we go about doing it. So, oh well, that would that was no wonder you speak so passionately about that, Sarah. I mean, that's that's just amazing. So you've had some incredible um, experiences, um, Ecuador as well. So you know you've been you've been global in in your opportunities. And accepting or taking up or looking out for those so ecuador was another one i know you talk about Yeah.
1: so ecuador was another one so yeah so for about 20 years really i've got uh, about 20 years of humanitarian and nursing experience all kind of intertwined which is why i say it's not really a linear journey at all Uh, lots of times of uh, working overseas lots of times of working back in australia as a nurse as well Uh, But Ecuador was during a time when I was working as a uh, cross-cultural trainer and um, part of that was to take teams overseas. So we would train teams here in Australia. um, But one of the things we're really aware of, especially when you're going on a short-term team for three or four weeks, is not to come and impose those cultural values on other people. Uh, And so we would train people to be listeners, to be observers, to be servants in that Mm -hmm. culture, the same essence of servant leadership. Uh, and so Ecuador was one of those uh, teams. So I led a team. I was only still in my 20s myself, but I led a team of uh, sort of young 18 to 20 year olds and uh, went again and visited some some different projects. So one of the projects that we visited was uh, a school that was running on the rubbish dump where literally people are born and live and raise their children on a rubbish dump. And yeah. uh, the work there was, was really incredible. The school that was actually built on the rubbish dump uh, empowering those children to go to school and we realized that not we the, the people that I was working with realized that um, the children still needed to be available to help they would sort of pick and sort the rubbish and then sell it on uh, yeah. to make a little bit of money and so they weren't sending the children to school because they couldn't afford them uh, to go for the whole day. And so that's uh, one of the things I love about working in development and humanitarian is always thinking about those innovative ideas. So I mean mm-hmm. we were just visitors, but the people who had done that were were really thinking through, okay, how can we empower these people? So they had morning classes and in the afternoon the children were still out on the rubbish dump. So you know, really heartbreaking to see people in that level of poverty, but also really inspiring to see people who are thinking about creative ideas about how to change things for the next generation as well.
0: Mm, mm. Wow, that's um that's that's something it's not just a foundation for you, it's it's ongoing, isn't it? The how, how you look at what you're doing at particular times of the year, um, where where you put your resources. Um, you've um I mean you're you're not just um a nurse uh, who's putting putting per servant leadership together you're also a speaker a leadership coach um and you really like to work in workforces to help motivate and get results um, so you know I, that's why i said to you i think you're a bit of a people whisperer this is all about people and understanding people to get the best out of them no matter what the circumstance yeah
1: yeah, that's yeah. right. And that's really, you know, when I think about myself, it's like Sarah Morse does people. That's what, yeah. <laughs> like whether, whether they're a, a palliative care patient, when I'm in Australia, palliative care is kind of my main niche. So, you know, working with someone who, and their family who's close to death, uh, whether it's uh, working in my business or whether it's working with other businesses, mm-hmm. really bringing all of the richness of these cultural experiences that I've learned over the last 20 years is really what I'm bringing to the table. So, thinking through, you know, the, these values of leadership. And I tell you what, servant leadership, that was something that that organisation I worked with at the time was called International Teams. They don't exist anymore. But um, but one of their values was servant leadership. And yeah. uh, my boss here in Australia, he was just so determined he was going to show us the values. And he lived servant leadership every single day. And that's something that I still carry with me mm-hmm. 20 years later was the... the nice observing a boss who put those those values
0: into practice. Oh, so. And there's there's no better leadership development, is there? To exactly. to have to work alongside someone. Um, I just think it's just precious. And not everybody gets the opportunity. If we could seek out, you know, have be able to make it work so we seek out the next opportunity, find out who we want to work with. Just be, you know, just really be that curious enough to go, how did they learn how to do that? Why do they do it? What sits underneath it? Um, yeah, and it usually comes out of um, an experience, a different yes, space yeah. that we're put into, which really helps us think about our values, beliefs and assumptions.
1: Yeah, right. Well, well, that's really what I try and do when I'm working with workplaces and leaders yes. is just to get them to think through those things. So some people haven't uh, actually thought through what are their core values and how do they show up at work. Yeah. And so to think through those values and how they're living those values, and what I sort of say to people about culture here in, in the workplace in Australia is that when you start talking to people about culture change and people say, oh, my gosh, we have got so much going on already. We just can't get our heads around that. That's just too hard. And uh, I like the definition that culture change happens when we do small things consistently over a period of time. No, not, you, uh, you know, giant big things that suddenly you have to be you know a different person. It's uh, yeah. choosing one thing. So, if, for example, I talk to uh, some people... ran a workshop i ran my culture of courage workshop and one man decided he was going to work on gratitude and i came back three months later and asked some people to report back on how they'd gone and he said just by being intentional about gratitude with his team he had seen productivity increase he'd seen passion increase he'd seen connectivity increase he'd seen uh people (laughs) value and people wanting to turn up to work more increase uh, because he had started just being intentional about that one thing about bringing gratitude into the workplace. So, I mean, he was almost crying when he was telling that story of how much impact that had
0: created on his team. And the, la- the last four years, um, we've seen a whole lot of research now come out about workplace culture um, and and how it's either easy to influence or or very difficult or near impossible. But more and more, any of the, the top... Um, Culture, business culture commentators, such, you know, like Forbes, McKinsey, any of those. They're all talking about this thing around people. People matter, yeah. thriving matters, people's voice matters, how and so they're they're all talking about the people stuff. Whether they are still saying we don't want to come back into an office five days a week, wh- whatever it is, that's just a way of getting people together. But I I I'm with you. I just think that we pay attention to how people are feeling, how we're listening to them, and then looking at how they're behaving. I think that gives us a whole lot of intel about what we can do to adjust the way we look at leading them or working alongside them or giving them the opportunities. So you and I are a little bit similar there. I think that's where the the synergy happened. I think we could talk for
1: days and days
0: and days, Carrie. <laughs> I think we could. Now, you're also the founder and director of Unchained Solutions. So do, do you want to tell us Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Sure. So,
1: on one of our uh, humanitarian adventures, so in the process of all that, I met my husband, uh, who was the pastor of our local church, and so we literally sort of fell in love over over the altar, as it were. Uh, And so um, that was 15 years ago. We just celebrated our 15 year wedding anniversary. (laughs) Congratulations! Yeah. So when I married him, I thought he was. uh, I thought I was marrying the local pastor. And so that was a big journey for me. Uh, I went on a big journey of learning to love the place that I live, uh, which is the place that I grew up. But to me, that felt very like, oh, my gosh, like I've been all around the world doing all these amazing things. Now I am ended up exactly where I started. Uh, and so it was a bit of struggle. But within our first year of marriage, um, we both of us very strongly felt called to the area of uh, human trafficking intervention. And uh, I had encountered that um, earlier on. Uh, on one of those short term trips that I led a team to Athens working with uh, we working with refugees but one night we went out on the street and um, were working with the team who were working with yeah. survivors of human trafficking out on the street in the red light districts of uh, of Spain and uh, and on that night actually they they took us into the brothels and there was a girl there who was brand new from Romania and who had been just recently trafficked into Athens from Romania um and they sort of came out and they said oh well she can't we you know nobody can talk to her because she's just brand new she doesn't speak greek she doesn't speak english she only speaks romanian i said oh i actually happen to be fluent in romanian um can i go in and talk to her so uh, we just went in we gave her some basic health information access to know how to call us if she needed help and things like that uh but that was really my first exposure to the idea of human trafficking um and even though I had worked in Romania and probably seen it happen, we we know children from the orphanage went missing um, and or or just got relocated overnight. And I don't know, at the time we we're like, "Oh, that was weird. I wonder why that happened. And now looking back, thinking they were actually probably being trafficked out of that orphanage. Mm-hmm. so so I had encountered it earlier, but um that time in Athens and spending time on the streets and really understanding, human trafficking and realizing the darkness of that world Mm. uh, first started moving towards that as a married couple I said no I'm not interested that's too hard too dark too too awful I'm not I don't want a part of that and uh, my husband who hasn't hadn't experienced it yet was like well it can't be that bad I'm like no it is that bad and if we're going to do this you have to know it is that bad Um, and so we went off to Spain which is uh, one of the main trafficking destinations in Europe Um, both for um, a transit and a destination country for people uh, in Europe because of uh, just where Spain sits. In yeah. terms of, you've got Africa, you've got Europe, and then you've got all the Spanish speakers coming as well. Yeah. Um, and so we headed off to Spain um, after we'd only been married for a year to really on, a, on an extended vision trip to sort of work out what was happening on the ground there. Was there something that we could do? Uh, And so we spent that first uh, two years just uh, living in Madrid, watching, connecting, networking, really learning the language and finding out what was happening on the ground there. Um, And we became involved with a few grassroots uh, organisations that were working there on the ground. Uh, In the meantime, Stephen also wrote his uh, PhD in human trafficking as well. Um, and then, and then in the second season there, I ended up working in a safe house for survivors of human trafficking, uh, and working as a, a health worker there. So taking them to all their appointments, to um, helping them to plan for their future, um, mm. things like that. So that was a very big eye opening time of working in that safe house. Mm. Um, we thought that that was the big grand plan. So he finished his PhD. We, uh, we came back to Australia via the States so that he could graduate from his doctorate um, and then arrive back in Australia, launched our big fundraising program on, right, this is our, this is our next big thing. This is the thing that we're, we're going to be doing. We've learned Spanish. Now we've got lived experience. Stevens finishes PhD right And we had an opportunity to, um, to basically um do a national program but it was a a volunteer-based program so we came home to raise money for that Uh, so we launched our our big fundraiser and our new big plan and then a couple of weeks after that Stephen's dad got diagnosed with cancer and um, about six and he died six weeks after so it was a very very quick um, and then we didn't realize that his mom actually was in had quite advanced dementia that his dad had been caring for her and uh, we didn't realize how bad she was until he wasn't in the picture anymore because we'd been overseas and we we just didn't realize. Uh, and so then at that point it became very clear she had to go into care and we couldn't go anywhere. Um, yeah. Very strongly we talked before about values and one of our core family values is family, yeah. and um, and so we just thought we we can't go we can't go back. Um, and so we were grounded in Australia. And so, you know, when you talk about resilience and life changing yeah. and things like that, we felt like we were sort of full hurtling towards this plan that we thought was the plan. Um, and then that just got completely cut off and we thought, what are we gonna yep. do now? Yeah. And so we found ourselves with all this experience and research uh, for the other plan. <laughs> and <laughs> then we thought, what are we gonna do with that now here in Australia? And that was in 2018 when the Modern Slavery Act was just coming into play in Australia. And so we really saw an opportunity there where um, we could start to engage with the Modern Slavery Act uh, and and to help companies around us engage as well. So we had been very niche focused on human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Um, Human trafficking is part of a much broader scope of modern slavery. Uh, and so Stephen, being the very clever person that he is, um, uh, upskilled into the world of modern slavery and ESG, and uh, and then we founded Unchained, uh, which so Unchained solutions to inspire Australian companies to make an impact on modern slavery. And so that's what we're that's what we're still doing now. So he's the CEO of that, wow. and, um, has just done an incredible job of growing that. Um, yeah, to, to be able to offer really meaningful services to companies yes. to address modern slavery in their supply chains.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, listeners, I don't know about you, but, um, yeah, there's there's been a few little goosebumps that I've had while I've been listening to Sarah, and there's been some real dips into our traits as humans and what we, how we sometimes see humanity for our own benefit. <clears throat> Addictions, a whole lot of things that I've been buzzing around in my head as you're speaking so i do thank you for for sharing that (laughs) for some reason i've got a bit of a cough so pardon me um sarah you've got a website you're also now a speaker and so i think by telling your story with with us today on thriving matters it opens up a whole um the whole possibility of people listening and going we need, we need Sarah to be a keynote for us to come in and work in our company around culture, to actually look at this the social outreach that perhaps our company, our business, our team is looking to support. Um, so I'd, I'd like you to sort of say to people, look, if you had a message for the world at the moment. Would you like to share that um, before i give everyone your details uh, and before we then upload you onto our thriving matters um uh, platform which um is is going great uh, great guns because we're hurtling towards the end of 2023 uh for a brand new world but there will be people who are bubbling around their thoughts about how else can i contribute how else can i add a little bit extra to what I'm doing or let go of some of the things I know are not working or giving me any life. So um, what would you like to say?
1: Well, it's funny you should ask, actually, because uh, I'm just about to launch my new keynote into 2024. So I've been on a bit of a journey with my keynote as well. I started off speaking about modern slavery. In 2018 but I wasn't ready and the market wasn't ready either at that time so that's when I verged into talking more generally about culture of courage but my new keynote for 2024 is a fusion of both so I'm talking about culture of courage for thriving workforces everywhere so <laughs> looking at our, our home team looking at our home team how our, how our home team can thrive but also looking at our global team and how our global team can thrive. So if we think about the people in our supply chain as part of our team, uh, how can we help them to thrive as well? And mm-hmm. so really merging the two together and knowing that it takes a culture of courage to stand up. It takes a culture of courage to be the first one to say, hey, let's get real about our supply chains. It takes a culture of courage to, to take those risks. And you know, we know that if people start scratching the surfaces, they will find slaves in their supply chain. That's not a matter of uh of if there are slaves in our supply chain but there are who are they and where are they yeah uh, and okay. so it takes a culture of courage to stand up to that because you know our, our economy and the way that our businesses are structured are relying on on those people in slavery so so how can we actually have the courage to look into that and then make an impact so that our home team can thrive but also that our
0: global team yeah. can thrive as well And for for all age groups, because um, really the leaders of the future are our children and our grandchildren, Mm -hmm. um, are are already those who are exiting um, their school education, but are looking for more more and more challenge or looking to make a difference. Um, And I think in the last few years, that's what a lot of us have been doing. You know, a lot of the the commentary is about this notion of um, the great resignation, I like to tip that upside down and say, for me, it's been the age of recontemplation, where yeah. we're contemplating how we can live a more holistic life, one that is is quite spiritual um, and also able to look at others and that notion of humanity. And we're global. Within seconds, we are anywhere in the world. So, Sarah, I'm just blown away. Now, listeners, if you want to hear more about Sarah, uh, know more about her, you go to sarahmorse.com.au, right? And you can catch her on info at sarahmorse, uh, Sarah has been a Young Australian of the Year, World Economic Forum, Woman of Excellence, um, Mumpreneur. She's also been as part of the Australian Speakers Australia and had a scholarship um, for, for them. You, you've heard what she's been up to in her in her life um, and you know how passionate she is about not just herself but others. So she's a, for me, she's a real people whisperer. So I don't know if you want to claim that or use it, but you're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've just had a, an amazing um, time with you today and, Happy to to extend the conversation another time as well. And I I know that your new keynote is just going to be blown out of the water in 2024. That's the year we're we're moving towards now. Um, We talked to ordinary guys and gals who were doing extraordinary things in life and work. And listeners, you know... Sarah Morse is one of them. So it's been an absolute pleasure today, Sarah. I know there's no more time left in anyone's day, so we've got to make the most of it. So I wish you well for the next weeks as we lead into Christmas and that notion, that whole notion of, of giving and thinking outside of ourselves, I think, is coming, coming to the fore. We, we need presents, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S so thank you for awesome. your today. <laughs> yeah your today. um listeners don't forget every podcaster loves a little bit of love so if you've enjoyed listening to sarah and and our uh, our conversation today make sure you share it with a family member or work work uh mate anyone you think has has an interest here even the younger generations for heaven's sakes let's get it out there and spread it around like manure basically that's dolly levi in hello dolly used to say money is like manure; spread it around i think love and abundance and our heart centered work is meant to be spread around like manure as well so on that note (laughs) i'm going to leave you carrie benedict signing off for the day thank you so much sarah it's been an absolute pleasure
1: Amazing. Thanks, Carrie. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much.
0: And listeners, thank you. You are precious and you're thriving matters. Bye for now. I'm Carrie Benedet, and this is my podcast, Thriving Matters.